Hey, Oshi here. Thank you so much for downloading the show. I really appreciate it. Um, before we get going, as you know, podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. And there's two people that, well, there's more than two now, but there's two main people that work very hard to make sure this show is fantastic. And they are Andy Ma, my audio producer, and Rachel Barrett, my show producer. Now, I need to pay them. I need to pay them because they're freaking good at what they do. And, you know, grand don't come for free, as our mate Mike used to tell us. So, you might hear an ad. If you hear an ad, thank you for helping me pay Andy and Rachel. If you don't hear an ad, then you're going to hear Katan Joshi say something pretty freaking good. Here we go. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We have really been bullied into thinking that we have far less power than we do over the past decade. The core message of climate change denial was that we cannot change the skies and the oceans as human beings. We just don't have the capability. But it's because we have a lot of trouble dealing with our existence within a group. And actually, as it turns out, you don't need a large number of people to cause a massive change. Ask the fossil fuel industry about this. You know, there's like 200 executives sabotaging the future of our entire species. And so the same principle applies to us too. You can't forget how much control you have. It sucks a little bit because I see people worrying that they don't have the capacity to stop what's coming to stop the trajectory of the future. And it's like, no, 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 you, that's, that's you. You have that. That is author and climate activist Katan Joshi. And this is episode 370 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Osha Ginsberg. This is episode 370 of the show with Katan Joshi. He is uh, on Twitter at Katan J0, K-E-T-A-N-J-0. It's cracking Twitter feed, actually. I really recommend it. And you can also find out all about him at uh, katanjoshi.com. C-O-K-E-T-A-N-J-O-S-H-I dot C-O. More about Katan in just a moment. If you've never listened to this show, this show is called Better Than Yesterday. What it says on the box is what we what we plan to do here, just to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show, on every show, in fact. 
will help you go and do something in your day-to-day that, you know, when you go to bed tonight or when you wake up tomorrow, you go, you know what, yesterday was actually pretty good compared to the week before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's what we're here to do. I'm here twice a week. Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. And um, that's it. If you like the show, you could really help me out by letting someone else know about the show. That's the very best thing you can do is tell a friend, tell your aunt, tell your uncle, tell your brother, tell your cousin, tell someone at uni, tell someone at work. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for everyone that's enjoying my latest series of Friday podcast, Dealing with the Fuckets. Who knew? that the fuckets were something that was inflicting our country. Uh, there's a pandemic of the fuckets, and um, I'm grateful that the things that I've learned about how to deal with fuckets have been helping you. And um, so thanks heaps for all emails about that. Send us your email at gmail.com. Really, really appreciate that. On that email address, yes, um, someone did email me <laughs> again to say, <laughs> come on, man, you talk too much before you get to the big... Fu-. Look, I've got to do all the stuff where I do the housekeeping. It's any show, you've got to do housekeeping. When you listen to a radio show in the morning, they're always going to tell you it's 7.17 and 27 degrees today. You know it's 7.17, but someone's just turning on. All right, so everyone's first time listening, so I have to say it every time. I won't be upset. Trust me, mate. I fast forward my favorite podcasters when they're plugging their Patreons because I'm already listening to their Patreon episodes. I don't need to hear them talk about their Patreon for three minutes. Or I want to get them to get to the good stuff. I'll be fine if you fast forward me. All right, there you go. I've got to say, I had a bit of a tough one this week. Uh, I'm recording this at the end of January uh, 2020, where uh, January 26th was one of the days that was on that day, a day of enormous um, power and um, significance in my country. Unfortunately, quite a negative power and negative significance in my country as far as I'm concerned, and as far as many others are concerned. A very tricky day. And it was also fucking hot. So yeah, if you live anywhere in the southeast of Australia, uh, you would have experienced a heat wave over the last seven days, uh, depending on where you are in the country. It moved across the country in uh, over days a day. And each heat wave, as they come, they get more intense, they get hotter, they last longer, and they get closer together. And that's fucking scary, isn't it? I don't know about you, but that's I'm scared. Now, if you know anything about my story, you know that for me, it was always about the sea rising. Uh, when it came to climate fear and climate anxiety. It was always about the sea rising. And what do you know? It's the heat. The heat is going to get us before the ocean comes up, man. I'm telling you. Because this is what it's like, you know, as the heat waves get more intense, you know, when I was in the backyard with little Wolfie and we've got a little paddle pool from Bunnings and, you know, it's about two or three centimetres deep of water and we're just splashing around. I'm thinking, fuck, what's it going to be like by the time he's five or by the time he's ten? By the time he's my age, you know, what's it going to be like in 40 years? 45, let's be honest. Um, and I'm not alone in this, you know. I'm not alone. I, I read an article through the week on the um, ABC technology technology part of the news section um, by um, James Pertle, wrote the article. And um, he wrote that already in Australia, in 2021 right now, heat kills more people than any other natural disaster. And that's including fires, floods, and cyclones, all right? We think these things are deadly, and they are, and people do die, and it's awful when people die in a fire, in a flood, in a cyclone, but heat kills more people than all of those things, and that's fucking scary, man. That is fucking scary, because you really cannot escape that. Already right now, I live in a city in Australia called Sydney, already right now in Western Sydney, there's 2.5 million people that live in this part of the city. All right. There's many countries that are smaller than that. All right. There's a fucking heap of people, right? The temperature in Western Sydney gets close to 50 degrees centigrade in the summertime. 
That's the air temperature. That's just the ambient air temperature. But like the roadways, the black roadways, the bitumen gets up to 80, 80 degrees centigrade. If you're listening in America, you're going to have to do the young conversion. You decided to go out on your own with Fahrenheit and I'm just not happy about it. It's pretty simple. All right. One kilogram of water <laughs> is also one liter of water. Zero degrees is where it freezes. A hundred is where it boils. That's it. It's just, it's simple. Just go with it. All right. Come over to the good side. Speaking of 100 degrees, in Western Sydney, they've tested playground equipment. Kids, playground equipment. They've tested it at 100 degrees centigrade. All right? Speaking of boiling water. Now, I don't have to tell you there's a limit. There's an upper limit to what human beings can tolerate. There's a point where our ability to sweat and cool our core temperature down just stops working because we can no longer evaporate heat into the air and cool our bodies down. And at some point, it gets too hot for people to survive, which is really, really scary. So 2.5 million people are living in a part of the city that already gets to 50 degrees, all right, close to 50 degrees. What's it going to be like in five years, 10 years, 20, 30, when we see that there's locked in changes into our atmosphere, there's locked in warming that we cannot do anything to avoid. They are 100% coming for us. What's going to happen when it gets too hot to survive. In Western Sydney, I'm not talking about the Gulf. You know, I'm not talking about Abu Dhabi. I'm not talking about, you know, some desert country overseas. I'm talking about right fucking here, right? Is it logical to move 2.5 million people away from Western Sydney? Where would everybody go? Who gets to go? What if you can't afford to go, right? I mean... Don't get me wrong, when I first started losing my mind about this back in 2014, I, st- I really thought long and hard, and I spent a fair amount of time at real estate websites <laughs> looking at mountaintop bunkers. You know, the idea of moving to Tasmania or moving to New Zealand, it, it was definitely in my mind. But I did decide a long time ago, why run? Why run? Where would I run to? And what good would it do? Everywhere on the planet is in trouble. Everywhere on the planet is in trouble. If not from the effects of global warming, from the effects of people escaping global warming, there is no way out of this. There's no way you can go where you'll be able to get out of this. I would rather stay. I would rather fight. I would rather be a part of a community that figures out how to adapt and grows and becomes resilient and prosperous with a new way of working things. I would rather do that. Because why go anyway? What's the good of it? because it's in the adapting that we have to push those in power to do something right fucking now. We absolutely have the power to demand it right now. If you can believe this, the current health advice in parts of Australia, current health advice for vulnerable people is if it's too fucking hot, go to the shopping mall. Really? That's it? Just go to the shopping mall? Hang out at the 24-hour Kmart until it's cool enough to go to bed at 2 in the morning? (laughs) What if you can't go? What if you've got kids? Like, what? If you own a home in that part of the city, you want to protect your asset. It's probably next to your super. It's probably your biggest asset. So you have every right to demand that your local council do something about mitigation about adaptation, not only planting trees to create more shade, but thinking about how do we alter the parts of the environment that trap all this heat, you know, massive, big bitumen car parks that radiate 80 degrees and well after the sun's gone down, just keep pumping heat into the air around our homes. 
like, is there another way we could deal with that? We're going to have to because it's, it's not like an if. It is fucking coming, man. You've felt it. You've felt it on those days, that sense of dread of like, damn, this is second day in a row or third day in a row like this. But think about what would the effect on the national economy be if within just a few decades, probably it would happen very quickly, it would probably be one or two really devastating events over two summers in a row and then suddenly the absolute bottom would fall out of the property market and these suddenly these a few hundred thousand houses would suddenly, their values would just plummet because you can't live in them for a big part of the year. What would that do to the economy? What would the effect be on the rest of the country if two and a half million people are trying to migrate somewhere else so they can survive in the summer? Think about that. Roads, water, schools, food supply, all that stuff that we think about when building new communities, all that stuff comes into play. The, the pressure on the existing communities of these people fleeing these incredibly hot, unsurvivable parts of the city. Because no matter where in the country you live, I urge you... <laughs> Reach out to your local council, reach out to your, your state representative, reach out to your federal representative. This is our chance to do something that will make those years survivable. I'm not here to scare you. It is scary, but I'm not here to, you know, blow a big horn and say run because there's no fucking way to run. All we can do is act. That's it. I'm just here to make sure you know the score. And if you know my story, you'll know how intense it is for me to even have this conversation with you, to even consider these things and to even have a conversation like the one I'm about to have with Catan. I mean, it's super easy and I know it. We could just sit back on the couch and watch the second season of The Boys, which is really fucking good, by the way, if you haven't watched it. <laughs> and we could just not think about it. But what's the time in history that's really easy? September 11. You remember where you were on September 11, right? You remember that? That was 20 years ago doesn't feel very long ago, does it? In fact, it feels really, really recent. 20 years. Now, let's put that 20 years in the other direction. 20 years from now is when this stuff's really going to kick in hard, all right? So we don't have time to go, oh, we'll do something when. We don't have time. We've got to do something now. Now, now is the time for action. But trust me, it's going to be okay. It will be okay because we will cope. There are ways to adapt we have to move now. We have to. Think about what it is to make a move now when we're not in a state of reactionary fear, all right? We're not reacting to something terrifying or something horrible where a lot of people die. We're going, actually, we're going to do something preemptively and that's going to give us a sense of agency and control. I mean, I would rather personally that we think about spending public money on making some mitigation and adaptation changes now than in a decade from now when we've had a couple of summers in a row where hundreds of people die and then we have this rushed, urgent action and an election is won and lost on the, some policy and then a party gets into power and fucking whatever. No, no, let's do it now. We'd rather not act in a state of panic. We'd rather not act in a state of fear. Let's act from a state of calm but, you know, considered <laughs> and moving forward. Reach out to whoever is representing you in the public sector right now. Do it. Do it today. Change where you spend your money. You have the power to make change happen. You do. And in my experience, taking those small actions is the only thing that can help mitigate climate anxiety. Because we are going to deal with this one way or another. There's no way out of it. All right? There's no way out of it. We will have to adapt. We will have to mitigate. 
And we may as well have some agency in that adaptation and that mitigation. And heaven forbid we may even get a chance to come out in a better economic and socially equitable position because of it. I mean, why should the companies and the power structures that got us into this mess benefit from getting us through it? How can we participate in this? We may as well participate in saving our own lives, right? I mean, because there is a way forward to survival. There is even a way forward into prosperity. It is a clear path. It's a path that's been seen by many, but we have to have the confidence to just start walking that way, even if it is uncertain, which is why I wanted Katan Joshi on the show today because his new book, Windfall, is, is really something. But before we do get to Katan, speaking of prosperity, if conversations about how we might stand to benefit from the global climate emergency interest you, if the idea of like, hang on a second, you mean we can be financially better off because of global warming? If that idea is that concept makes you go, hmm, there's prosperity here? It's not just all scarcity? Yes. If there's something that's something you'd like to hear more about, then I would urge you to slide on back in the podcast feed to episode 344 with Eitan Lenko. He's an entrepreneur, an investor, and a very fantastic human being. I love his brain. And we spoke in episode 344 about exactly that. The coal and gas contribution to the economy and to jobs and all that stuff, obviously it's there, but that story relies on the impression that what happens to coal and gas is under our control, where it's not. We export those things and you only export things when there's a buyer on the other side and the buyers are going away. Even the government doesn't argue anymore that the buyers aren't going to go away for coal. And for gas, we're starting to see that trend as well. And there's LNG tankers now floating around the world full of gas with nowhere to go because the demand's dropped out of the market. This transition's going to happen, whether we like it or not. And we can keep our head in the ground and have a lot of people be out of work without a lot of notice and without a plan for what they should do. Or we can recognise there's a transition happening. We've got huge opportunities in that transition and let's plan for it, for where those people go, what we do with our economy and not have it like catch us by surprise in five or ten years' time when China says, that's it, we're not importing coal anymore, we've got enough of our own. That is Eitan Lenko. You can find him at episode 344 in the podcast feed. Just scroll on back to find it. So let me tell you about my guest today. Katan Joshi is a renewable energy expert. He's an author. Uh, he's a writer, he's a climate activist from Australia, currently based in Oslo in Norway. His writing appears regularly at the fantastic website reneweconomy.com.au. He's also writing at the Australian Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. His latest book, it's uh, out now. I've read it. It was heavy lifting, but I read it and it's great. It's called Windfall, Unlocking a Fossil-Free Future. And in that book, he really does explore how we in Australia at least, have lost 10 years. We've lost a decade of squabbling about carbon prices and carbon taxes and mythical wind turbine syndromes and rampant obfuscation on behalf of the key stakeholders in the fossil fuel industry. And then he puts forward a pathway to not only surviving, because that's indeed what is at stake, make no bones about it, but also thriving as the planet heats up and we find new ways to power our lives and our economies. Ketan is a brilliant communicator. He has an ability to speak in a way that is extraordinarily accessible, and I love the way that he doesn't hide his ideas behind academic language, which can often be the case for 
just purely because of who they work with. People who exist on the bleeding edges of, of policy construction will often speak in quite academic language, and that becomes very difficult for everyday people like you and me to understand. But Catan has an ability to speak in just words that you and I use every day to describe quite difficult concepts, and um, he's very, very, very good at it, and I'm really grateful that he came on the show. His Twitter feed is freaking good. It's Catan J Zero. So K-E-T-A-N-J and the number zero. Enjoy this cat. Enjoy this chat. Enjoy this cat. He's a cool cat. From Sydney to Oslo with Katan Joshi. Glad we can speak. I'm terrified. Mm. <laughs> of me or climate change? Climate change. Or both. <laughs> I don't know if you read my book, but it's a pretty... Uh, it's a pretty going concern. It was, yeah, I just, yes. it was how my brain unraveled, how I ended up in paranoid delusions and episodes of psychosis and all kinds of shit because I, uh, my brain fantasized that the worst possible case scenario known to man was happening right now and I was the only one mm. that knew about it. And it was terrifying. Yeah, I listened to your episodes interviewing climate people. All right. <laughs> and I think you were on Will Anderson's podcast. Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I listened to that as well. And um, yeah, I guess obviously that story that, that you told about your own experiences was, was pretty harrowing, but also your own knowledge about the other side of it. The I guess you could call it the solution side is really quite, quite deep. And um, <laughs> you obviously like a lot of time and effort into learning about this. So... Yeah, that's really awesome. You know, it's um I think a lot of people support the idea and they support the cause, but um it's sort of nice to see someone who just kind of sits down and goes, Okay, I'm gonna learn a huge amount about this. So yeah, was, it's very impressive. It's Thanks, cool. Katana. I appreciate it. Like a, a large part of me learning all that stuff was, to be honest, through, you know, the acceptance and commitment therapy work that I was doing. Cause mm. I have various kind of <laughs> It's no one's. It's not like you've got a broken arm. You're everyone's on a spectrum, right? So, there's OCD in my mix, mm. right? It's part of the thing that goes on, and it's part of the reason why I'm very successful at some of the things that I do because I have a brain that absolutely will not fucking stop until something's done, right? But similarly, mm. if tough information or bad intel gets into that machine, it can wear out of control quite quickly, and I really didn't want to go back on any psychotics. So I just knew I just have to fucking learn to live with it. I have to learn to live with how terrifying this is. And a big part of learning everything and reading into it was like just facing it. Mm -hmm. And it's still hard to talk yeah. about this stuff. Uh, it, it is. Yeah. It doesn't get easier, but it. Um, I think I might, I don't know what I feel. The, un the uncertainty feels less overwhelming if that's what I could say to you. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't know, man. Let's well we'll get to that part. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You you look like you're in a very beautiful part of the world. Where are you? I'm in Oslo in Norway and it is 3 degrees at the moment. Winter is is coming and everyone's cozying up their apartments, you know, to prepare and it's a beautiful part of the world, but it is also a relatively cold part of the world. Yeah, that's um, okay. So, 
Yeah, but it's nice here. It's nice. I moved away from Australia about a year and a half ago and we're here for four years. Yeah. My wife's on a work contract at the University of Oslo. So I'm kind of just working, doing, continuing my work from here. Yeah, it's pretty good. I don't know that much about Norway except a lot of my favorite metal comes from there. <laughs> what for you was the most surprising part of moving to that part of the world? And I guess culturally, what did you find most interesting? This is a very me answer, but uh, of course, it has to be the cultural way that people cope with being a fossil fuel country. This is something coming from Australia that, of course, I think about a lot. Norway is uh, one of the world's biggest exporters of oil and gas, mostly oil. It's part of where Norway got all of its wealth. There's a sovereign wealth fund that you know a lot of the profits from all this oil get put into this sort of big bank and that feeds back into the country you know this is like where welfare comes from this is where you know childcare payments health all this sort of stuff it's so deeply ingrained and i was like i wonder what it's going to be like you know are people going to be running through the streets furious like how how dare you link the well-being of our country to this industry or are people kind of just going to be like oh you know we know, we know that's there that's but we're not really going to talk about it too much and it's kind of the second. It's a bit more of an unspoken sort of thing that people don't really feel a huge amount of comfort talking about. And when I say talking, I don't mean I don't even mean like the argy bargy of like uh, right wing media and left wing like that sort of thing. I, I mean more. It's not even argued about. People don't like it when you bring it up. It's awkward. It's like bringing really? up an awkward conversation at a dinner party. Really. So that has been one of the most interesting things I have to say moving here so i'm fascinated with the the norwest sovereign wealth fund in fact i'm doing a bit of work around that can we dig it.org is uh something i'm working on basically just floating the idea of wouldn't it be interesting to have a sovereign wealth fund in australia for battery minerals you know and just using the the case of yes norway's sovereign wealth fund is based on fossil fuels and look at what freedom it gives the country look at the quality of life, look at how they cope with COVID. It works out to be around about $311,000 for every man, woman and child in Norway, which in Australian terms, that's enough to pay every person in Norway JobKeeper for the rest of their lives. It's astonishing. It's so huge. And the idea, so yeah, of course, like Australia has mining royalties, right? With fossil fuels, like you kind of yeah, get but- like a snippet and you just chuck it towards the state government or whatever. But it's sort of treated as if it's the same thing and it's really not the same thing. The quantities are just so different. As, and, and, you know, the mining royalties and the future fund here in Australia are so very different to what is an actual sovereign wealth fund. There's just the belief, just the core idea that these things that we're pulling out of the ground, they belong to all of us. Therefore, all of us mm. should benefit from their extraction. That core belief then informs all the policy that comes after that. You know, if we're going to pull these out of the ground, then Nana can have top healthcare until she's 95 or, you know, everyone gets great hospitals. The idea, when you look at the size of the coming battery market, when you look at the global demand for the minerals that Australia, by the luck of the draw, happens to have under our feet, when you Mm. look at that and you look at what we as a country now have the opportunity to do, we have the chance to seriously fortify our nation economically for whatever's to come over the next 200 years or so. This is why I'm involved in it because it's a no-brainer for me. But 
I'm not the first person to come up with it. I'm sure they've, they've, there's plenty of people that have tried before. There's plenty of people that have given it a shot, and uh, <laughs> they've all uh, they've all found. But it's I think it's a great idea to to push for because uh, I, so yesterday this big report came out from this body called the International Energy Agency, right? So this body was set up in the 70s to basically protect the oil industry after the oil crisis. So they have been leaning towards defending the oil and gas industry and to some extent the coal industry as well for a few decades. And people have criticized them very strongly for that. And in the 2010s, they started going, oh, God, okay, now we have to start. They, they produced these yearly forecasts, right? Like what's going to happen over the next decades? And in the 2010s, they were like, oh, geez, okay, now we have to start including like renewables in our, in our forecasts, like wind and solar. And so what they did was like, they sort of put them in there, but they were like, these aren't going anywhere. <laughs> Don't worry about wind and solar. They're too small. They're too intermittent. They're too expensive. Nothing's going to happen. And so what people have started doing is they've gone back to all those old reports and started comparing them to what happened. And, you know, you can just see the curve of actual wind and solar growth just being way, way above even the most optimistic predictions that they were doing for wind and solar. And so what they're doing now is they're like, okay, what's going to happen over the next few decades? <laughs> They've just had a lot of criticism for, for being so skeptical about renewables. And given their background, you know, sort of understand why they were skeptical about renewables. But now you, you look at their report and the big question over the next decade is renewables. It's sort of an answered question, right? Like they're cheap, they work fantastic. They just bring so many jobs and benefits. And it's a big no brainer for a lot of countries, no matter the ideology of the country. But the big question now is how do you integrate them? You know, like how do you sort of build this grid where you've got like wind and solar and a bunch of other things? And how do you sort of wrap that around this old design that a lot of countries have, which is designed for like big, coal and gas and nuclear and things like that and uh, i mean like nuclear will play some role as well in the future for a lot of these grids around the world australia is still an open question but the big tension now is like do you predict that a whole bunch of gas will be used to integrate wind and solar or do you predict that a whole bunch of alternatives like zero carbon alternatives so that can be stuff like transmission lines. It can be stuff like battery storage. It can be demand response, which is like where you tell people like when there's not enough power, you say, can you please turn your air conditioner setting up one degree and you're suddenly you're using like 25% less energy. So all that sort of stuff, it doesn't produce emissions, gas does. And I was reading this report and it's like, they finally got over their fear of renewables. Fantastic. But when it comes to something like battery storage, they're still like, oh, no, no, it's going to be too expensive. Don't think about that. Gas is going to be the thing that countries use to integrate. They're going to build new gas. They're going to extract new gas. And they're going to use that to integrate wind and solar. And it's like, you guys did this already. You guys did this for the past decade. Like, can't you see what's going on here? And then in, in 10 years' time, I'm going to be there being like, ha well, the IEA got it wrong on their forecast. <laughs> and people in positions of power like in the Australian government, will read this report and go, uh, well, there's not going to be much demand for the stuff that you need to build a battery anyway. So why should we care about the um, mining of lithium in Australia? That's not going to be a huge growth industry. <laughs> it's like, no, I think they're pretty wrong. You know, I think the batteries will play a very big part, particularly consumer batteries, like stuff you have in your home. I think that's going to play a massive part in resolving this problem pretty quickly far quicker than we expect. 
It's kind of interesting. You spoke about the adoption of renewable technology in countries that is, you know, it's not an ideological decision. And it sucks. And I do, you know, I do talk about this a lot in that the moral decision, the moral right time to do this was probably sometime in the 70s, probably around when the oil crisis hit. That was probably around the time to start figuring this out. So sure, 40 years late, but here we are. It's unfortunate we had to wait this long, but now it's the financially right thing to do. And everyone likes to save money and everyone likes to make money. You know, <laughs> everyone like, particularly everyone likes to save money. And here we are right now at this point where if you want to save money, you go down the renewables path. You know, I find it quite interesting. I play poker every week with a bunch of different guys. And we come from all spectrums of life. I remember talking to one of them about the last election and it was like, yeah, but I'm, you know, I own a small business. I'm, I'm going to vote, vote liberal. I'm like, mate, what, you think the other side of politics don't want to make money? Everyone fucking wants to make money. The Greens want to make money. Everybody wants to make money. Money's good. Money gives you freedom. Money lets you do whatever the fuck you want. And it seems now that's the only ideology, ideology that's moving <laughs> the needle, Ketan. Ketan, it's killing yeah, me. So- it's killing me. This ties into a bunch of the forefront of thinking on climate action around the world. People sort of mistake it as a bit of a sort of greedy, capitalistic style of thinking. But in reality, what this is more about is financial pressures for individuals, right? So things like upgrading a grid to modern technology is cheaper for people. That's just how it works. Particularly when you're upgrading to a technology that has free fuel, you don't need to get a truck and mine sunlight. It just happens. And so when we talk about the cost impacts of renewables being saving money and making money, if somebody puts a solar panel on their roof, they're actually in a position where they can make money. It's not just that they're chopping stuff off their electricity bill. They're actually becoming citizen generators, right? And on top of that, of course, you've got the fact that they are directly participating in climate action. They're like frontline warriors, you know, they're sort of right there doing the thing that everybody kind of wants to do at the moment. And so there's all these flow-on effects. So renewables, aren't they're not just sort of swapping out one big industry for another big industry. It is a big industry, but it, it has really different characteristics that seep into society in very different ways. And the battery thing as well is another really good example. I think we're going to see a lot more of this where people start to have a lot more control, a lot more power over their power. So they basically starting to engage directly with the financial side of the flow of power, right? So instead of just kind of having this piece of paper that, you know, you get every three months and you rip it open, you're like, yeah, whatever, you know, I'll pay that. You're suddenly, you have the potential to lose money, you have the potential to make money, depending on how you participate as a person. It's a really different way for people to engage with the money side of power. And so it's a lot more democratized. There's a lot more involvement. People kind of have a lot more say. They have a bit more sort of pushing power when it comes to like new policies around technology. That is basically the reason why I love renewables so much is that their characteristics, their technical characteristics mean that people get power where they didn't have power before. Not literally, but like power is in the, you know, it it changes their life. It's really cool. I like it. When you are someone who is so vocal and someone who writes so much about climate and energy and economics, how often do you curse your science degree for getting in the way of your feelings when it comes to interpreting the facts? When like my feelings want me so much, like 
for me, like <laughs> my feelings want me so much that the whole country, whole world be fucking renewable tomorrow. All right. Yeah. And the facts are that's not going to happen. And I have to be in acceptance mm. of reality and I have to go. And uh, for example, around nuclear, there was a long time where I was like, no, 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 no. And then I started to do a lot of research into the facts and I went, well, actually, you know what? There's probably fucking there's something there. <laughs> and yeah, mm. I, had to, I changed my mind. How often does your science degree get in the way and how often do you kind of butt up against your own ability to interpret <laughs> research? <laughs> yeah, nuclear is a really great example of that because I <laughs> actually, before I started working in this area, I thought that nuclear power was as emissions intensive as coal. I just made that assumption because I was like, okay, it's a big machine. It's out owned by a company. So it must be doing something bad because it's owned by some sort of faceless corporation. And then, of course, I started working in energy. I was like, oh, no, they're actually zero emissions, you know, zero air pollution. Uh, you start to learn all this stuff. You're like, oh, geez, okay, I was completely wrong about that. But then you sort of sit down with the technical side of it and the scientific side of it, and you go, okay, what's the ideal uh, shape of society if we were to operate in a way that isn't self-destructive, you know, that isn't putting us on this pathway? And you get one answer. You sort of get, you know, what a lot of people have seen, which is basically a mix of like mostly renewables. You have some nuclear, you have some hydro. Uh, you probably have some carbon capture and storage in, in sort of limited little sections of society. You make all of transport electric and you make most of industry electric and you're pretty much there. And let's not get into agriculture because that's, that's a whole separate thing. Yeah. But um, you sort of look at these models and I look at them all the time. And in a funny sense... It's like, that's the scientific side of me, happy and satiated, you know? I'm like, okay, great. There's a plausible, logical pathway that we could follow and we would actually be, human life would be better. People would live far better lives with far less risk, both in the short term and the long term. What I find myself butting up against is actually more the social and political side of things. And, you know, maybe it's because I don't have training in, in either of those two things. But nuclear, again, is a good example of where the technology was fine. You know, it did, it did what it was meant to do. It was, it's safe. It, it works pretty well on, on grids that are designed for old machines like coal and gas. But society reacted to it in a particular way, you know, that these disasters happened. And it changed the way that we perceived the risk of nuclear. That, in turn, impacted the industry, which put a lot of money into, like, safety and that has made nuclear quite expensive. So now it's been pushed into the economic side of the triangle where if you do want to build nuclear, you have to put a lot of government support into it. And some countries will say, that's fine. That's what we want. You know, people in our country. So China is a really, really good example of this. China is planning, probably planning to... There was about a, 85 reactors or something. Yeah, there was a new report that just came out from one of the sort of top universities that often works in alignment with the government. And they've just got this big, you know, you would have seen these charts, right, where it's projecting out into the future and it's got different sized pizza slices of the different technologies, right? And of course, like most countries, renewables are the biggest slice, but nuclear is a pretty big slice too. And so is hydro. They have to build a lot of new technology there. And I think their intention is to try and use nuclear paired with storage to make it so that it can match up with renewables. So it becomes the thing that you use to integrate renewables, which is pretty clever. And that's fine in China, but if you look at Australia, suddenly it's a very different task. Like you have to change the law in Australia if you want to make nuclear part of the, of the mix in the future. 
And not only do you have to change the law, you would then have to say the government should support nuclear, like it should provide some sort of policy support for nuclear. So you've kind of got two hurdles there Mm. and they're not impossible hurdles. And if my criteria for supporting any technology is basically, do people support it? And, you know, I actually don't care that much about the economics and I don't care that much about the politics. All I care about is human love, you know, like to people, are people into it. So as a scientist, as someone who cares a lot about this stuff, what can you say to people about, there's so many extraordinarily uncomfortable things we have to face. Mm-hmm. That is what humanity looks like for the next couple of hundred years. That is what it is. All right. That is the fact. What, what tips can you give people to approach something that they've previously been quite confronted by and how might they be able to approach and disassemble that and maybe be able to figure out a way to reassess how they feel about something like if we need to make a decision about, for example, nuclear power or eating meat mm. or where we live? Yeah. So on the solution side of things, right? So basically our efforts to reduce emissions, there's this spectrum that is quite hard to engage with because you kind of have to activate two different parts of your thinking at the same time. And no one likes doing that. I don't like doing that. But what happens is that there are two different debates sort of going on in climate right now. One is the individual responsibility side of things, right? So I don't drive a car, but what do I do that's bad? I eat red meat sometimes and I make that decision. You know, I I go, I'm walking through the supermarket, I see some mints there and I'm like, oh, yummy, I want to eat that mints. The other side of things is corporate responsibility and government responsibility, right? So there's this report that came out a few years ago that sort of shows that a very small number of companies are responsible for a large proportion of the world's emissions. But that's a tricky moral calculation because what they're doing is they're the ones that extract the carbon from the ground. You can't obviously burn it unless it's extracted, (laughs) but they're kind of just the first step in this chain of events that takes the carbon from the ground up into the sky. And we're actually in that chain too. You know, we're sort of a little bit later on. So then people start to get a little bit nervous. They're like, well, you know, I don't want to give up driving my car if some company is just going to build a new qualified power station the next day. That doesn't make any sense. Like, why would I bother, you know, changing my car thing? And on the flip side, the companies are like, well, actually, we're fine, you know, to dig up this carbon and burn it because you're the ones who are demanding it. And we're just going to keep doing it as long as you keep demanding it. (laughs) And so what really needs to happen, because unfortunately we live in a time when as citizens, as people, we don't have as much democratic power as we would want to. The support for climate action, rapid climate action, is just so massive everywhere across the world that this should have been solved a long time ago. And the fact that it isn't suggests that there is this huge disconnect between what we want and what power delivers to us. So what has to happen is, first of all, it's okay to make changes in your life. It's actually a really great thing for you to say, instead of doing this 10-minute car trip, and just in that same report I was reading yesterday, I think that was about 60% of total emissions from driving is 10-minute car trips. And so, you know, if the majority of people switch that out with some sort of active transport, like public transport, like cycling, like walking, obviously you need governments to help you build cycleways and things like that for that to work, then it would have a huge difference. And that's a reduction you can bank, you know, that's a collection of molecules, like a handful of molecules of greenhouse gas emissions that will not be burnt because you made the decision, you did something and that's fantastic. You should feel real warmth and pride and don't worry about what all these other corporations are doing because the atmosphere is just like this bucket and we're just adding into the bucket. And once you hit that overflow point, that's bad. So the fact that you decided not to add something to it is really good. 
you know, don't, it's not like everyone has to stop all at the same time. Every decision to not do it is fantastic. And it really, really, that's something backed by science, you know, that's how the atmosphere works is that you deciding not to do something is great. On top of that, you can actually double your power when you've done something like that by telling people that you did it, you know. We've seen this with solar, where when people put solar on their rooftops, it's so visible that you get this almost contagious impact in suburbs where solar, you can see it on these maps. It looks so amazing. You can see it spreading like a good disease, you know, not a bad disease, which is so fantastic. And so by being an advocate, by telling other people about it, they sort of see how what makes you feel or that you save money or that you're healthier or all these other things. And they want to do it too, because people like doing what other people are doing. That's a pretty normal thing. And then the third thing on top of that, if you want to like, you know, multiply how good you feel by 10 times, is to pair it with some form of activism that is, you know, just accessible and well-suited to you. I like divesting from stuff. It feels so cool to just divest from stuff, you know, to log into your super account and go, okay, you know, what are you investing in? And you find out that they're investing in coal mines and blah, blah, blah. And then you can just go to a website. A good one is uh, Market Forces. They're a subsidiary of Friends of the Earth and they sort of, they help you choose like, you know, which banks, which super funds, which insurance companies are not investing in fossil fuels and they sort of help you join them. And when you do that, the power of doing that is really not to be understated by shifting your money away from these companies and then very vocally telling them the cumulative impact of uh, even a small number of people doing that is mind-boggling. These companies are now starting to make major decisions about the funding of fossil fuels based on divestment movements. So that's a quick summary of like the three sectors, I guess, of individual action, because it's not as simple as like bringing a you know, coffee cup to the coffee shop. Yeah. But in many ways, it's better. I'm interested to know, how do you communicate to someone, like this idea that you just said, if I ride a bike for that 10-minute trip, that would make a difference. It feels so fucking futile, this individual mm. choice. How would you explain how individual choice can make a difference? Mm. I sort of see myself as, you can envisage it in a bunch of different ways, but you can sort of see yourself as an army. I'll give you an example. You know, Australia's rooftop solar proportion is just mind-blowing. Australia's rooftop solar is this one massive generator that has been created by a bunch of people who all could have felt futile when they were making their change, right? Every, every single person who did this could have just been like, you know, I'm getting solar, but, you know, it's like a one kilowatt system in a trillion billion megawatt power system, and it's not really going to do much. But instead what happened is they may have felt that, and it, and it you know, may have been genuine, but other factors took precedence, which is they may have wanted to be part of something bigger. They may have wanted the financial sort of benefits of installing solar, all those sorts of things would have come into play and it would have overridden that feeling of like, oh, it's really small, you know, but I, I'm kind of just going to do it anyway. And so what happens is that as soon as we forget about how small we are, suddenly we start to have these impacts that no one could ever have predicted. I, I always come back to solar in Australia because it, this was driven by a mixture of like policy economics, but most importantly, it was driven by a bunch of people being like, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm just going to depart from existing on the status quo of like what I want to do with my life. And I'm just going to make this one additional change. And as a consequence, 
nearly 8% of Australia's total national electricity market has been decarbonized. And this is a big grid, you know, Australia consumes a lot of electricity. And this has happened in the space of like, probably about seven years, I think. Now, a couple of days ago, South Australia hit this moment where mostly rooftop solar and a bit of like large scale solar, which is like, you know, big farms of solar out in rural areas, hit 100% of demand for a 10 minute moment. Now, just to be clear about what that is, there was a bit of gas generating as well, but that's exported interconnected to Victoria. So basically it was sort of a matching thing. Solar's output matched what demand was, what households were consuming in South Australia at that time. Now, this moment is driven by people deciding to make a change and suddenly looking back on it and going, well, I probably felt a bit futile when I, when I made that decision. It didn't feel like I was doing something massive. But all of a sudden, you look back behind you and you go, there's something massive here. There's something like just totally world-leading and incredible. And it comes from people making decisions. And that really sort of makes me really very keenly aware of the power of people deciding to do little bits and pieces of this because it then adds up in ways that you just don't expect. Cycling is actually another really good example because uh, you actually need to have a bit of demand. You need to have people who want new infrastructure in cities, things like cycleways, for those things to start existing. And then once they start existing, that creates new demand and it becomes this like cyclical cyclical and yeah it's it's really good and so i think it's a genuine worry for people to feel like they're not making enough of a difference or too massive a difference but people also really need to be keenly aware that they're a member of this group of like frontline warriors on the biggest problem in the history of our species (laughs) and they're doing very good like they're doing quite good the momentum that's being injected into these systems, and I talk about power a lot because that's kind of like my background is yeah. power, but we will see the same things happen in this decade in, in transport, I strongly suspect. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You talked about, you know, it's frightening to look at. I'd love to know your thoughts on this. I can only read so much and I can only look at so much before my face explodes in violent eruptions of face herpes from the stress. Yeah. As someone who's a scientist, what can you say about reading 
the facts, looking at the graphs, mm. seeing the stagnancy of policy change, and then trying mm. to go out and have a nice day with your wife. How do you <laughs> yeah. personally hold, you t- we're talking a lot about holding both in your hands. How are you able to hold both those things in your hands? Like I just said, my, my background is a bit more solutions focused. So I'm not quite as good at dealing with the locked in stuff. Like I mentioned before, you know, the atmosphere is a bucket and there's some stuff in the bucket already. It's very hard to take out. There actually might be a point where we're able to, but it's not going to happen in the next couple of decades. And that means there are some impacts to our world that are locked in. So some changes that haven't manifested yet, but will almost certainly manifest. That includes things like worsening wildfires, floods, etc. things like that. I'm not going to go into it because I think everybody has a good idea yeah. of exactly what that entails. But what then it brings up is disaster response, right? What happens during a disaster? How does society change? How do people act? How do governments act? And it's very scary because they're new types of disasters. But on the other hand, we actually have a very good understanding of how to cope with unusual disasters now. So there's a couple of things that we're starting to see emerge as really, really good things that are providing a lot of help and support for people and some very smart, passionate and dedicated people are working on this to help protect us, to minimize the impacts of these things and ensure that the people we love are as safe as possible. And I don't want to downplay the seriousness of the changes, but at the same time, I also don't want to downplay how good these people are at dealing with disasters. Like it's quite a raw sort of scientific social kind of thing. And so an example would be the response to Hurricane Katrina, where what happened is there was a lot of studies after that into how communities responded. And what happened is they found that the best type of disaster response was bringing your neighbor a a basket of muffins before anything happens, you know, and talking to them and saying, Hey, you know, my name's Katan and I live here and I don't have a car. And, you know, if if something happens and you do have a car and, you know, just so you know, like we've got a kid and we like, we can do this particular thing. We can help you in this way. Uh, We've got cargo bikes, you know, so we can help deliver supplies. We've got this in our pantry. Those conversations are extremely powerful because what happens is first of all, they, they make, communities a lot more connected people know each other and secondly your neighbor becomes the first responder we we sort of have this idea in our head of like you know fire trucks and ambulances and police cars but when it comes down to events that sort of block off roads and block off access and power it helps to know your neighbors Mm. and then the other thing that we're finding is that disasters that are unpredictable (laughs) can be predicted in a way because now we're actually starting to see a trend in changes, right? So you you would have heard the phrase "the new normal," and people criticize it. I think justifiably because it implies that you've kind of changed, and then you've hit this normal, and you're just going to stay at that for the rest of you. Of course, what's going to happen is that change will become the norm, and you know we sort of we then have to start adapting to it. But interestingly enough, we're actually starting to see patterns in the change. And so, with wildfires, for instance, what California's recent disasters have shown is that these things manifest in the world in ways that are recognizable. There was the Black Summer bushfires in Australia and I watched it all from overseas and horrible to actually be in it. But as someone 
disconnected from it, but watching it very closely because, of course, all my friends and family in Australia, I really engaged with the visuals of it. And, of course, there was the photographs of the sort of dark red skies and things like that. And then California's wildfires a few months ago were visually almost identical to the extent where San Francisco, my brother lives in San Francisco and he's like out there photographing these like orange skies, you know, these sort of Blade Runner 2049 star skies. And so with disaster science, and there was a big report that came out from the UN um, a couple of days ago on this as well. What they're finding is that there is a trend, there is a pattern emerging. And that doesn't mean that we'll be able to see everything coming, but it does mean that the raw uncertainty, the sort of sadness that you get from going, something is coming and we just don't know what it is, is slightly lessened because we're actually starting to learn what it is. And then all of that power of like science and engineering and society and community that we're applying to solutions, you put that onto the threat of these new disasters and you go, well, we will use the same powers of human love and science and logic and we will apply it to this too. And we're not going to solve it. It's not going to stop the problem from happening, but it will protect life. Um, it will protect the environment. It will protect things we love. And it's really just the same principle as you would get from talking about why it's easy to build a renewable system and mitigate emissions, right? It's the same thing of like human skill that applies to something that we're like, oh no, this is new. Like how are we going to deal with something new? It's exactly the same thing. And so there are issues of equity as well. So people in developing countries may not get the same access to like what I just described as like technology and science and in and money in particular. And so we have to worry. The thing that I'm worried about is that this won't be distributed to the people who need it most. You know, countries like India, of course, my background is Indian. I have a lot of family in India and I worry a little bit about the way that they will cope with a lot of these things. I also worry a bit about climate migration, you know, how, how societies will deal with the issue of people escaping places that you just can't adapt to anymore. But when it comes to the actual disasters themselves, I think that we will be probably better than we imagine at becoming resilient to these disasters and changing communities and societies to protect things we love. Do you think the financial systems, the economic systems and the governmental systems, including the democratic systems that have got us into this problem, do you think they have the capacity to get us out? Not in their current form. No, no, definitely not. When you sort of spend a lot of time dealing with like <laughs> trying to sort of get these solutions across the line that are just, I said earlier, you know, they're no brainers, you know, they're really straightforward and unthreatening and you'd think that they would just make a lot of sense and then, and then you experience through life the incredible resistance to what should just be a very simple and straight line you know to fixing this problem a lot earlier than we're doing now then you realize that there's something ingrained here right there's there's a problem with the bedrock something deeper than we realize and an example of course would simply be the fossil fuel industry having access to regulation, right? Like regulatory capture. They can say, we have the power to stop you from stopping us from emitting greenhouse gases. And that's really bad. You know, that's a thing that says, even if we solve this climate change problem, if something else came up that was an existential threat, 
and somebody, a company who's making money from it, they would probably just do the same thing. They would just be like, well, I'm just going to set up a shady lobby group and start coming up with these reports saying that the problem is fake. And, and um, we have to fix that for sure. I think a lot of people agree with that. But the problem that then comes up is what next step? Do you destroy capitalism, for instance, to resolve this problem? Do you have to destroy capitalism before you start trying to fix the climate change problem? And of course, as it is with everything else in this whole climate change thing, you kind of have to do a lot of different things at the same time and hope for the best. (laughs) So if you really want to destroy capitalism, then give it a go. Like if it helps fix the problem, (laughs) like, and if it has good outcomes for people, that's all I care about is like, are people happy? Are they doing the right thing? And probably in some parts of the world, um, a massive shift in the way that people live away from capitalism towards something else is probably going to be a really good thing. And in other parts of the world, it probably won't be. So like try, it's nothing wrong with trying, but the thing that I've absolutely focused the most about on when it comes to like systems is ownership and participation, right? So you probably can tell from some of the answers I gave before, but I really love it when people get to be a participant in climate action, right? Even if they don't give a crap about emissions, even if they don't care, even if they just vote for whoever, it doesn't matter. If they become a participant in this change, then all of a sudden you've got this really massive, powerful coalition across the board. You know, people had this idea in the sort of 2010s when climate became really polarized, it became this really left-right thing. They were like, well, how do we fix this? You know, maybe we just need to talk about things in a way that isn't offensive to conservatives, or maybe we just need to have people kind of like come together and talk about things and have a dialogue. Both of those things are actually helpful, but the most helpful thing tends to be just getting people involved. Just giving them a tool and saying, everyone's in this fight. This is everyone's on board. We all have to do this. This is no choice. This is the biggest thing of our lives. Um, Here's a tool. Here's what you're good at. Go do your thing that you're good at, which we know and love, and make it part of this fight. And you're part of our team now. (laughs) You're part of our mobilization. And that really, that just makes a huge difference. And that is a system we don't see enough of today. Uh, And I think it's because we sort of put a lot of stock into companies and governments doing, doing stuff as we should. They, in particular, they actually, I think they have a lot of responsibility for reducing the burning of fossil fuels. But when it comes to building the new world, I think that citizens, you know, all of us around the world, I think we, we actually have a lot more to do than we worry. Yeah. You, you mentioned something there, which I think people may not, quite grasp. Mm. We talked about the locked-in changes, the carbon that's already in the atmosphere, the stuff that's already Mm. in the bucket. There's changes that will happen that are locked in, no matter if we went 100% nuclear tomorrow, whatever, like we can't Mm. get out of this stuff. It's going to happen. We are going to have to change how we do things. The way we have been doing things, I'm talking like from dropping the kids to school to how you cook your Mm. dinner, all right? (laughs) That's the level of granularity that we'll need to be starting to think about how we change what we do, what we think about when we just run the shower, when we flush the toilet, when we feed the dog. This is the level of granularity that the changes need to come to. But you mentioned a thing called building the new world. When you think about Mm. building the new world, there's so much that we don't know. 
There's so much that we don't know that we don't know. There's so many things that might happen once something shows up. I'm not a techno-utopian, but I understand that we don't know what we don't know and we don't know what could happen when something that we don't know happens, okay? Mm. <laughs> when you talk about being a part of designing the new world, what is it that you're talking about? So this is basically where energy justice and equity comes up when it comes to design questions, right? So this is where that feeling that we all get during a big change starts to become really important. And that feeling is what's happening to my life, you know, <laughs> what's happening to my lived experience. And you start to worry a little bit less about those around you and you start to worry about your own experience. And that's not a bad thing. People, I think people freak out that that's a selfish or, or greedy thing. I think it's completely natural and okay to go, oh no, this math, like, this climate change is going to change society no matter what, uh, whether we fix it or whether we don't fix it, what's going to happen to my life and the people I care about. And that's fine, but you have to sort of think about that, chew it over, and then start to think about how you can make this something that fixes a wrong, something that's currently broken. Because that way, climate action becomes something that you desperately want and that you engage with in understanding how much it makes things better. And I'll give you an example. Decarbonizing transport, just getting fossil fuel cars off the road saves a mind-boggling number of lives from reducing air pollution. Just forget about emissions, forget about climate change. Just getting rid of the air pollution from cars, even in very clean cities like Australia's cities, will have a massive, massive impact in reducing premature deaths from air pollution. Now, we don't currently see that as a problem or an injustice. And of course, you know, people live in areas with like worse air pollution. Um, of course, they're the people who can't afford to live in the, in the sort of shiny, clean areas. That's an injustice that we can fix extremely easily. And that is baked into climate action. That, that's baked into the solutions. Other issues of energy justice are more complicated. So stuff like when it comes to building large energy facilities, like big wind farms, you know, nuclear power stations, big solar farms, who owns them, you know, like how do they share their benefits with the people living around them? How do you get the, you know, 2000 people who live in the circle around the wind farm to also become participants in climate action and to become empowered to shape the new world themselves, right? Because that's their country. That's where they live. That's the land they've grown up with. And you want them to feel a, a deep connection with the change that's happening. If you kind of just come in and just go, we're just going to plonk this here and <laughs> don't worry about you guys, then people react badly, of course. Uh, and that's actually happening here in Norway, unfortunately. There's um, a really big slowdown in the, in the growth of wind power because the machines just weren't built with getting people involved in mind. They were kind of, we'll just put them there. And of course, Norwegians love nature so much and they love their land and they love the look of the place. And so it hasn't gone too well. And I think that we can do better. So that's what I mean when I talk about shaping the new world, because it can be something that is not just like, oh, cool, you know, I have a new stove, I can do induction cooking. It's actually fixing a problem that you didn't even realize was there, which is like when you burn gas inside your home and you don't have adequate ventilation, it's probably doing something to your body <laughs> that you don't want it to be doing. And so there's a lot of different problems in society that just kind of automatically become part of climate action in terms of rectifying something that's been wrong for a long time. And the other really good example is, of course, the people who work in industries like coal, like oil and gas, 
who are facing the situation where the leaders in their businesses and governments are not going a massive change is coming for your industry and we need a safety net for all of you, all of you people with like families and like mouths to feed. And we need to rescue all of you because you're people too. And you all have something to contribute. You all have tools to pick up and become part of this change as well. America's green new deal policy is I think a really good example of something that deals with that really well, because it really focuses on them and says, you are part of this too. And we don't want to leave you behind. And it's actually extremely important that you become part of this change. And so, and then it sort of ties in with what we were saying before as well about the locked in stuff, because the, as soon as people become participants in mitigating emissions, suddenly they also become a lot more community minded when it comes to dealing with whatever locked in impacts there are as well. So people really start to develop a stronger sense of togetherness, a stronger sense of already knowing what it's like to act as a community to face a threat. And so it all kind of feeds in very nicely together. And so I think there's not a particularly wide recognition that the stuff that will change in your life will be an improvement. It will be your life is better. You know, something that was screwed up in the past, you have the chance to fix it. You have the chance to design this so that it's it's fixing something that's just been gnawing away at you and that has been kicking you down for a long time. It's happened, I mean, you are about, you're 11 years younger than me, so it was happening when you were alive, but you were very little, but humanity actually has faced existential threats before in the threat of nuclear war. It's kind of hard to grasp that now here we are in the 2020s and it's kind of hard to understand that there was a time when as easily as your phone could ping and say, hey, you've got a new like on Facebook, you see a thing on the TV going, you've got two minutes to get to shelter. That was an absolute Mm. reality for most of Western Europe, all of North America and all of the Soviet Union, all right? And even if, you know, way down in here in Australia, if there was a nuclear exchange, hello nuclear winter, we're fucked. Like that was it. The world was going to end. Society faced an existential threat that was going to end humanity. What was interesting about that though is that there was no potential economic winners or losers. It was everyone dies, <laughs> you know? Yes. Whereas here there is potential economic winners and losers, which is really weird to think about with formerly frozen tundras mm. perhaps becoming farmland and it's, it's pretty fucking weird. What, but aside from that, what do you think we can learn about facing this super slow motion? Mm. What can we learn from that nuclear threat, facing the super slow motion existential threat that's here to play out over decades or centuries? You're right. I, I don't know what it's like to, <laughs> to be worried about nuclear war. I was terrified. Except, um, so, you know, from, like, I was fucking yeah, okay. terrified. I was a kid. It was fucking terrifying. I knew enough that it was I, super scary because it was in everything. Every movie was about it. Every TV show was about it. Every v- music mm. video had my favorite rock band dressed in some sort of Mad Max looking kind of post-apocalyptic shit. It was fucking oh, everywhere. Wow. Yeah, it was so scary. I actually... I grew up in London and I was eight years old when I moved away from London to Australia, but I went to a bit of school there and a big part of school in London is going into bomb shelters and simulating an air raid. So they would, uh, you would, we made these masks out of paper and we would slip them on and they would get little cassette player and just play air raid sirens in this bomb shelter and no one would speak. And it was the eeriest thing I've ever experienced. It was, I just, I don't know why I think that traumatized me, but like, of course, I never lived that as a reality. It was always just like this funny historical thing. 
I think actually a good analogy for what we're experiencing right now is if you remember when COVID-19 became, you sort of had this moment of maybe one or two weeks. I think everyone sort of felt this where it was like in February, you saw some articles about this virus in China. You're like, yeah, okay. It's another one of these, you know, you see them all the time. There's some world health organization official saying something and you're like, yeah, okay, it's 2020. We've got science, we've got technology and no one's going to let a pandemic happen. Like a 1919 style pandemic. It's just not going to happen. And I forgot about it. And I was, you know, (laughs) I was of course like thinking a lot about the bushfires in Australia and then it suddenly became a reality, right? Like it suddenly became an exponential curve. The, uh, suddenly I started bookmarking all the statistics websites and watching the curve of COVID-19 cases rising and rising. And you're on that line, right? You can't look ahead of the line. You're just like, this is so new and so sudden. It feels like you're strapped to this machine and it's never going to level off. It's just going to keep going up and up and up for the rest of eternity because you can't imagine what the curve looks like. And of course, as we know, with with every pandemic, it's a wave, right? It comes and it goes and it'll come back again a little bit and then technology just resolves it, right? Like the vaccine for smallpox in the 1900s and then the vaccine for coronavirus will probably come. But I try to really focus on what I felt in those two weeks, those first two weeks, because it was like you suddenly had to go, this is it. This is going to be a life-defining moment, right? This is going to be the thing that you talk about when you're 72 and you're like, oh, I was 32, the coronavirus came and did all this stuff. And that was not a nice feeling. I felt extremely like seized up. You know, I didn't know what to do with myself. In my mind, I'm like making excuses like this will be a two-week thing, you know, lockdown for two weeks and then <laughs> someone will figure it out. Someone will do something like it's going to be fine. <laughs> And you described climate change as a slow motion disaster in your question. And the more I think about it, you know, the more it feels like it's a slow motion COVID-19 or COVID-19 is a fast motion um, climate change because uh, you see so many parallels, so many parallels. And the biggest one, and I feel this at the moment too, is that when you're on the up bit of the curve and it has just happened, and keep in mind, I did a little calculation on this. When I was born, our species was was emitting out of the bucket that we've got right now, there was 60% less when I was born. This is a recent thing. Our species emitting too much, emitting so much that we're putting ourselves in danger, that's my lifetime. This is me. This is recent stuff. We're still on the up bit of the curve. We're still in the first two weeks of COVID-19 for climate change, right? And we're feeling, oh, we're seized up. You know, it's really sort of physical and visceral. And it's very hard to think of a bend in the curve. It's very hard to go, when's the down bit going to come? And it's going to be bumpy. There's absolutely no getting around that fact. But what we have begun to see in the past two or three years is that the physical fear, the uncertainty, the the stuff we just don't know about the future, we're actually starting to get a bit more of a a clear picture of the chances of, of the curve starting to bend on emissions. And I have to say, and I don't say this lightly at all, they're pretty good. (laughs) They're actually not too bad in terms of the chance of there now being momentum enough that the bend starts to happen. And then now what we're faced with is 
how much bend do we want? <laughs> you know, how steep do we want the drop to be? And of course, you know, that's going to be the next fight. But hey, we want to fight. We're probably going to make it bend. No one expected that. I was so last night, very late at night, I was looking at the predictions for emissions from 2006 from the International Energy Agency, the same organization that I mentioned before, the yeah. one that used to love fossil fuels. Yeah. And they were like, listen, we're not going to do much on this in the next couple of decades. You know, by, uh-huh. by 2030, maybe we'll do a bit. We'll have a little, <laughs> we'll have a little tiny little bit there and we'll start to maybe start to decrease the increase. <laughs> and I compared it. I pulled the data up from my emissions data and I compared it to their predictions. And it's way lower. A coal in particular has been hammered and renewables in particular have overperformed. And those two things, because electricity is such a huge proportion of the emissions problem, those two things have made a dent. And we need more than a dent for sure. But all of a sudden we've realized that we can make a dent. We have power. We have the ability to change things. And when it comes to like a nuclear missile, you can't take an action. You can't be like, well, I'm just going to change my lifestyles to, to decrease the chance of nuclear war. <laughs> and it's really, it's proper. I, I imagine that would feel like absolute raw helplessness. And climate change is very different because, as I was just saying earlier, it's a human caused problem, which means it can also be a human resolved problem. And so that's the unique characteristic of it. When it comes to the, the will to change. What you mentioned before, I, I get very much how it all kind of ties in with being a part of redesigning the solution. Like if, for example, there's a, there's a buddy of mine that's putting together, it's like, why should Elon have all the fun? Would you like to buy a share mm. in my big fucking battery? How many megawatts would you like to buy? We're going to build, say, for example, a tera- a gigawatt, mega, whatever, big fuck of thousand, big thing. And so then it's kind of democratizing. So here's this big battery. It's owned by 10,000 people. All right, and this bag battery is going to go for forty years. Why should it be just one power company that has it? Ten thousand people have it, and if those ten thousand people are all benefiting from that form of climate action financially, mate, you better believe they're telling everybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> turn your yep. air conditioner up higher, so mate. You go for it. You crank that fucking t- nineteen. <laughs> it's thirty-eight degrees outside. It should be nineteen in here. You're using my watts, mate. <laughs> using my my electrons. Sweet. People underestimate how powerful it is. And, and there's actually, there's still room for the for the big thing. And I think um, probably what we'll see is offshore wind in particular will become the more corporatized side of it because it's just, people don't live in those bits of the ocean very often. So it's hard to have local ownership, of course. And of course, the financial side of those projects, particularly offshore, you need to have companies doing it because it's sort of, you need to have the economies of scale. Yeah. But when it comes to stuff on land and around communities, you'll see a much more of a mix. Like there will still be some big corporate, you know, big solar, big wind, et cetera. But uh, you'll see a lot more ownership, I hope. And you don't need a lot to energize people to an incredible degree, right? Like you don't need to have 100% democratized, owned by citizens, right? You can just have like 20 or 30%. Denmark had this. So Denmark had a target. They said, we want 40% of all wind turbines to be owned by locals or by cooperatives. And the whole country just changed. The whole energy system just became a lot of wind. <laughs> and it just works brilliantly. And Denmark is not a small country. You know, it's, it's big wow. enough that this is a massive social change. People's attitudes towards the technology has changed. They were like, yeah, okay. It, you know, it mucks with my view a bit. 
and I acknowledge and understand that. But at the same time, I'm seeing some, I'm involved in it. I get to decide where it goes. I get money from it and it completely changes the whole formula. And that's not a hundred percent community owned, right? Like that's 40%. Yeah. Wow. But it was enough to just change the whole, yeah. Denmark doesn't get mentioned enough, you know, in this sort of thing. Like you sort of hear a lot about like Germany and yeah. in the UK, but Denmark has done so well and it's very much down to how well they understood what people wanted. Katan, you've by describing that, you've really underlined what you said earlier in that, yes, there's a problem. And every stage of our system that we live in, the system I live in where I have water purification, food that's driven to me from cans so I can have a nice fresh banana here in Sydney, all those systems, right? Every way to to solve the carbon problem in that system is a chance to make it better. And every way to solve that system is a chance to involve the community in it. By doing those two things, if you think about how we could radically change our society, what we expect from our community, how we feel in our community, I dare say the climate is not the only thing that's going to be changing, man. I dare say that (laughs) what it is to be a citizen of a country, a democratic country, what it means to participate in a democracy, what it means to participate in a community, it's now almost Mm. being forced upon us. And like, we've been able to get away so long with my personal choice. The effects of my personal choice are held, felt by somebody else, by whoever's making my microphone in Actually, my microphone's made in Sydney. Whoever's making my, like, this little piece of thing, this was made in Italy, all right, this little bit of camera shit, all right? So whoever dug Mm. it up, forged it, whatever, whoever pay grade, Mm. the conditions they lived in, the, like, it's not my problem. It cost me $3.95, all right? But now those things, here we are. The effects of my Mm. choices are now felt by me. And the opportunity to change our society for the better at every point is extraordinary. I was terrified to speak to you. It's still scary, but it's less scary. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's how it should be. I mean, it's uh, when it comes down to it, I think the thing that a lot of people have been feeling is a disconnect between what we do and the experience we have as, as human beings, right? So sort of uh, decisions we make and what happens after the, we make those decisions because think about climate change denial, right? And think about the way climate change denial manifested in the 2010s and really the core message of climate change denial was that we cannot change the skies, right? We can't change the skies and the oceans as human beings. We just don't have the capability. And all the science that says that we can and that we're damaging them is wrong because we're just, there's humans do not have that power. (laughs) And that of course was incorrect. And, you know, there was a whole decade of fighting to push that out of our minds and it's gone now. But the same feeling tends to manifest even in people like me who have been dealing with this for a long time, you still have a bit of a feeling of like the decisions I make and the things I do are just being poured into this big swooshing pool and it's just nothing, you know, (laughs) nothing's happening. And it's because we have a lot of trouble dealing with our existence within a collective, um, within a group. And actually, as it turns out, you don't need a large number of people to cause a massive change. Ask the fossil fuel industry about this. <laughs> There's like 200 executives sabotaging the future of our entire species. That's not a lot of people. And they're doing a lot of massive change to the physical nature of reality for all of us. And so the same principle applies to us too. Obviously, we don't have that power. But at the same time, you don't need 100% of people marching out on the streets to actually bring about 
very significant change. And I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, all of a sudden the government of Australia goes, oh no, we were wrong the whole time. We need to start acting on climate change because there's actually a huge amount of stuff you can do completely outside of that arena. It would go faster if they did that. That would be very nice. But as soon as everybody else starts going, well, actually, you know what, stuff you, we don't need you. We're going to start to create change that disempowers you. I think probably then they'll go, ooh, okay, maybe we'll get on board. But it's a really important principle, which is that the things that you do have a consequence and every molecule of greenhouse gas that you decide to keep underneath the crust of the earth has some numerical impact on the lived experience of people in the future. There's just no getting around that fact is that you are doing some measurable good every time you do it. It's never going to be enough to solve the entire problem just by Qatar deciding to cycle to childcare instead of driving. But collectively, it's way, way more than you expect. And we're starting to see that really, really distinctly in the top-down data stuff, right? We're starting to see it in the changes to the trajectories of countries, particularly in Europe, US, the UK, and Australia, but it's buried. Like the stuff that people can change is changing, but it's also being cancelled out by some extremely poor decisions from the government. So once you start to get rid of those poor decisions, then change will accelerate in Australia, which would be nice. But uh, yeah, I just want to make that message really clear, which is basically you can't forget how much control you have at the same time, you also have to deal with the stuff that, that you can't control. But we have really been bullied into thinking that we have far less power than we do over the past decade. But of course, that bullying came from those people who had all the power. And I think people forget that sometimes. It sucks a little bit because I see people not just worrying about the locked-in stuff that's already in the bucket, but worrying that they don't have the capacity to stop what's coming to stop the trajectory of the future. And it's like, no, 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 you, that's, that's you, you have that. You really, really do. And it'll help you cope with all the other stuff to recognize that power. I come at this from a very data, data perspective, you know, because that's my background. Which is why I love it. (laughs) Katana, it's been so great to speak to you. I'm just sitting here thinking like, if I, if I was able to have this conversation with you during 2014, when I was literally losing my mind, it wouldn't have made a difference because I was too sick. And my brain would not have been able to comprehend what you were actually telling me. I'm grateful that the work that I've done, the meds I've been on, the doctors that have worked really fucking hard to get me here, my wife who's dealt with everything and the fucking cold sores, uh, <laughs> have got me to a point where I was able to hear this conversation with you today and, and allow it to sit in me. And mm. I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you're in the world, mate. And I'm grateful that you wrote this book. The book is called Windfall, Unlocking a Fossil-Free Future. Have a great time in Norway, man. Brilliant. I'm so fucking slow to speak to you today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. And um, I'm glad you're feeling better. And I hope that that continues. (laughs) So there you have it. That is Ketan Joshi. His latest book is called Windfall, Unlocking a Fossil-Free Future. It's more relevant than ever. More relevant than ever. Very, very important. I mean, just look at what happened in Australian politics. Good Lord about the opposition in Australia um, and their climate policies. Oh, God. I mean, seriously. Even my dog who's on Prozac could probably come up with better solutions. Oh, I swear to God. Yes, my dog's on Prozac. Kitan Josh's book is called Windfall, Unlocking a Fossil-Free Future. He writes regularly at reneweconomy.com.au. If you've not been there, I thoroughly recommend it as a website to look at and go, oh, right. <laughs> okay, there are 
very smart people and billions of dollars being poured into this. It's not all, you know, someone shouting that coal is awesome and coal will be here for decades. You know, it's actually people going, actually, no, this fuck off investment fund just put so many jillion dollars into this thing because we're not idiots. And it's really good. I like to read it. Take action. Take action. Take action. Not tomorrow. Do it today. Do it every day. Take action. Start, you know, even if you don't want to reach out, all right, that's fine. You can let your voice be heard in another way. Start with the two biggest assets in your life, all right? Um, depending on where you are in your life, if you're out and you're about and you're working, your biggest asset will probably be your superannuation, which is your pension fund here in Australia. If you have got to that point in your life where you have a mortgage, your second largest asset will be your house or your flat, or wherever you live. So how can you protect your super and how can you protect your house? How are you going to protect your super from investments into industries that simply won't exist in 20 years, all right? How are you going to protect your house so you'll be able to live, survive, even thrive on days when the mercury gets to 48, 50 degrees? How will you be able to make sure that house is still a valuable asset that if you choose to sell it, someone will be like, yeah, this is great. This is a good house rather than, fuck that, I can't live there. And go from there. Go from there. We're going to be okay. It's okay. We're going to make it work because we have to make it work. And to make it work, it's going to take effort. It's going to take quite a bit of effort, but that's okay. Anything worth having does. And that's fine because it's in the effort. I don't know about you, but it's in the effort. It's in the work. It's in the action that I feel respite from the fear, from the dread. So get to it. Thanks for being with me on this journey. It's nice to know I'm not alone. I'm grateful to hear so many people emailing when they hear me talk about climate stuff, the way that I get to talk about it. I'm trying very much to just kind of depoliticize and just democratize it and just be like, look, this is it. What are we going to do about it? You know, I don't give a fuck who you are. What's your policy? If your policy is going to get the most people possible out of this alive in an equitable fashion, I'm in. <laughs> you know, it's really where we are right now. We can't let perfect be the enemy of good. We really can't. But thanks for being with me on this journey. I'll see you on Friday. Until we get there, look after yourselves, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.